0: Hello, welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines. With the annual American Society for Virology meeting coming up in two weeks, we are talking with graduate students and postdoctoral researchers who will be attending the meeting. So uh, thanks for talking with us today. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um,
1: my name is Michael. Uh, I was born and raised in Philadelphia um, in a neighborhood there called Roxborough, so in the north, I guess west part of the city. After, you know, my uh, childhood, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, um, where I was there for four years. I got my bachelor's in biology, a minor in biophysics. Um, while I was there, I got the chance to participate in undergraduate research. There, um, the main lab that I was in was. Uh, in Ron Hardy's lab. Um, he does work on um, the egress of, of uh, arena viruses and filoviruses. So a lot of my work concerned Lhasa, Ebola, Marburg. And honestly, after having that, having that, having that experience, I really you know, fell in love with the day-to-day of doing research in labs, the you know, kind of intellectual process of thinking about science and of thinking about follow-up experiments and of you know just how to think like a scientist. And I really wanted to build on that. And so I applied for a bunch of PhD programs, uh, was fortunate enough to get into a few and ultimately matriculated to Princeton uh, where I'm a second year now, but I'm in a few months gonna be a third year, but I'm gonna cling on to my uh, more junior status uh, for the time being.
0: And um, can you give us some background about how did you choose your program and then ultimately how did you choose your lab? What were the things you were looking for?
1: Yeah, I guess some, some of the uh, intent, some of the unchangeable things um, that, that, that kind of differentiates programs from programs is geography. So, you know, I really liked the area of Princeton. I, again, I grew up in a city. I, I lived for 22 years in Philadelphia and, and I loved it. But I thought it would be interesting to try the kind of change of pace that a more, I don't know, suburban, exurban setting of of Princeton would hold. And I mean, if you've ever been to the campus, it's it's gorgeous. It's something that looks beautiful in every season of the year. And so I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I also, when I was applying to programs, I had a rule for myself that I had to have five labs that I would be interested in joining. Um, You know, because, you know, generally people get three or four rotations and faculty often sometimes leave universities for other places. And, you know, if you go to a school and you only have one person you want to join and say they don't have funding for a student or they don't want to take a student or they go to some other university that headhunted them, then you'd be out of luck. So I my my rule for myself is that I would have at least five people that I would be interested in doing my thesis work with. And so fortunately, I, I, I had that at Princeton. I, I had many more than that at Princeton. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how, those are the two main things that I kept in mind as I was deciding, the, the environment and also the, the research aspect of it. Honestly, what, what, one of the fun ways that I actually found out about, about Princeton's program in like the department was a class that I had uh, when I was an undergrad. Um, there are several of these courses at any at a lot of universities where they have you it's kind of one of those courses where it's a you know a person's first like paper course where they'll you know read research papers discuss research papers and i, I was lucky enough to take one of these courses with mark Goulian, who's a, a bacteriologist at penn he does a lot of a lot of cool stuff with two component systems and whatnot and his course is on uh bacterial physiology so like um Basically, the three main aspects of it were quorum sensing, chemotaxis, and two-component signaling systems. And you know, at, at Princeton, we have Bonnie Bassler, so there's a lot of her in quorum sensing, and Tom Sulhavy, so there's a lot of him in two-component signaling systems. So I, I, I kept seeing the name a lot, and I thought, well, I guess I'd keep an eye out for this place. And so that's kind of how I was first exposed uh, to the university.
0: How did you you know you often you do rotation so how did you end up settling or picking your lab
1: i generally stuck with my rotations i tried to make them as diverse as possible so you know they included virology labs proteomics labs bacteriology labs and bioengineering labs so i i tried to give myself a wide breadth of research because you know, I feel like people often come into grad school with the notion that what they do in undergrad is what they have to do um, for the rest of time. So if you, you know, happen to get placed in a in a, a structural biology lab in undergrad, you have to be a structural biologist until you're an emeritus faculty. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to test that test that a bit, so I, I explored some other labs. I rotated with some with an engineering group, proteomics group, um, bacteriology group, and ultimately. Not to fulfill the thing that I just disavowed, I ultimately chose a virology group. Um, I and, and I joined uh, Alex Ploss's group, um, which is kind of fitting for the time. I mean, my during my uh, the end of my rotations, uh, the COVID pandemic had just started, right? And you know, Alex's lab deals with flaviviruses. And that's kind of the crux of my projects. Um, so I, I I really was thinking heavily about. You know, viruses of pandemic concern, and how you know by understanding some of the uh, unifying themes of wide groups of viral of viral families and genera that we can hopefully prevent the next pandemic. So that, that 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 kind of drove me, kind of a you know my 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 preliminary interest in, in viruses from undergrad, um, kind of a product of the times and of you know the past few decades of how. You know, viral research has helped to alleviate some semblance of human suffering. Um, that was kind of that was kind of the major thing. And also, you know, I really like the people in the lab. So that that's also uh, an important an important facet. You know, when you you know join a lab, that's your those are your colleagues for the next five years. I mean, if you're lucky, that's one twentieth of your life, right? So you know, it, it's it's a it's a pretty big commitment. And fortunately, I'm with a good group of people.
0: So I guess, why don't, can you tell us a little bit about what the lab is like? So how many graduate students, postdocs, sort of what's the composition, sort of what is the lab like?
1: Well, let me, let's take a, take a moment just to think the numbers through so I don't embarrass myself in front of my lab mates. <laughs> six graduate students and six postdocs is my Preliminary guess under pressure, but I'm sure that if I am off by one or two, they will happily remind me of that fact. Um, and then also uh, a lab manager and a research technician, and then PI. So and then also a bunch of under a bunch of undergrads uh, as well. I think we have I think we have six or seven undergrads right now.
0: No, oh, so a pretty big lab.
1: Yeah, no, it's a very it's a very uh, busy group. It's uh, always an inter- always interesting science being done. It's a- always vibrant. Yeah, and the lab generally uh, focuses on RNA viruses. Um, The the, the core of the lab's work is on human hepatotropic viruses. So hepatitis A through E. Um, And additionally, we have projects on flaviviruses. um, So dengue, Zika, yellow fever, things of that nature. Uh, And also some stuff with um, immunology projects as well. So a pretty wide range of of work. all under the auspices of RNA viruses and their interactions with their hosts, um, mammalian and otherwise.
0: I see. Cool. And so, why don't you tell us a little bit about your research? So, kind of, kind of like the types of experiments that you do, as well as sort of some of the main findings.
1: Yeah. So a lot. Of, so because I'm a, I'm at the end of my second year. A lot of this work is, you know, in its earlier, if not middling stages. Kind of in its in its growing in its growing pains um, as Anyone who has done a PhD knows, you know, sometimes things take things take their gradual steps and fits and starts. So, flaviviruses are some of the biggest threats that we have to global health. You know, in recent years, dengue has infected 400 million people in one year, right? That's you know, one that's one and one third of the U.S. population. And so, in addition to that, there are many lesser studied flaviviruses that often over the course of time become public health nightmares. You know, for example, we discovered Zika decades ago, but there was, there were only a handful of studies until the outbreaks in, 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 in the mid-2010s. So, you know, I, I've, been, I've been very fascinated by this genus of viruses and, you know, how we can understand some of the more unifying things about them so that we're not caught flat-footed by an Understudied version of these, uh, understudied member of this genus. So, one of the things that um, struck me as interesting about um, the flaviviruses is the extent to which their um, uh, vector association tracks with their taxonomy. So, flaviviruses will generally can fall under, under four classes um, those carried by mosquitoes, those carried by ticks, those with no known arthropod vector, and those that are insect specific. And so uh, this tracks along with their uh, evolutionary development. So I'm interested in understanding the essence of what makes a flavivirus mosquito-borne or tick-borne, and in understanding them, whether, you know, apart from the broader general virology that can be understood from that, whether we can use it to design uh, some pharmaceuticals that can be utilized to be broadly anti-flaviviral, beyond just your standard, like, ribavirin or other, you know, other broad spectrum uh, anti-ribavirals. So I'm broadly interested in understanding what would make, what determines that host tropism. So, you know, the kind of, the kind of bread and butter of a lot of these, a lot of these assays is to quantify how much a virus is replicating inside of a given cell, right? So we know that tick-borne flaviviruses cannot replicate in mosquitoes, and the mosquito-borne flaviviruses cannot replicate in ticks. So we have mosquito cells and tick cells, which are very in- very interesting and have their own um, idiosyncrasies to them. Um, and additionally, we have uh, human cells as well. So we use human liver cells, um, and so by utilizing these different cell these different cell lines and the different viruses. So for my- the viruses that I use, those are dengue virus, um, which is the one that I mentioned, a very important one in, in public health, and langit virus, which is a tick-borne flavivirus that is uh, BSL2 uh, 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 classified. It's the only tick-borne flavivirus that has a distinction. So that's why we, we are able to use that in the lab. So the baseline of like how we'll determine whether one of these viruses, dengue or Langet, can replicate in a given cell line, you know, human, mosquito, tick, we use a lot of different tricks, we can use qPCR that will quantify how many copies of a given gene, in this case, the uh, viral gene, uh, the viral genome, um, specifically the part that is most well-conserved, how many copies of that gene are present inside of the whole cell. So if there's a lot of copies of that, virus is replicating well. Um, And we can track that over time and get some semblance of the growth kinetics um, in the cells. Additionally, we can use flow cytometry, which is you know how you can tell whether a, whether a cell, when stained with, an, with, with a primary and then a secondary conjugated antibody, um, how much it's glowing. We can determine um, how many of the cells are expressing some viral proteins. So in this case, we we in this case we utilize the membrane protein for these flaviviruses, and so we can quantify you know viral expression at the at the uh, genetic and the proteinaceous uh, pro, 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 pro level, so by using those two different assays, additional ones. Um, I would not be a virologist worth my salt if I did not mention plaque assays, which are one of the one, one of the one of the oldest and most straightforward most straightforward assays for determining this. Um, which you know, simply simply put, if you put viruses onto cells. Do they kill the cells? And by determining monolayer uh, monolayer um, fidelity after treatment for a given time, you know, by staining the cells with a membrane dye, um, we can determine how well the virus is replicating these cells.
0: So, what are your main findings? So, for the two different cell types, is the barrier at entry or is it post-entry?
1: So, we're we're doing I'm doing some experiments to, fig- to figure that out. And so, you know. To, to, to tease apart entry from you know whether a virus is per- permissive or susceptible is the, the, the common dichotomy. That the, the, the dichotomy, uh, we can use several different assays. Um, those can be using microscopy, where you can see whether a virus is co-localizing on the outside of the membrane versus inside of the membrane, um, where it's localizing inside of the cell. Um, we can use qPCR as well to determine you know immediately after infection with on the order of hours. Whether the viral genes are present inside of the cell or whether they're stuck outside of the cell, things of that nature.
0: Yeah. So
1: those experiments are ongoing, and so we'll hopefully be able to determine uh, the dif- the differences there. I expect that there will be some. Uh, that that it might very well be multiple barriers to infection. You know, we know from hepa- we know from hepatitis C, for example, that you know, there are multiple barriers to infection in mice, for example, uh, entry, replication, things of that nature. Um, whereas for hepatitis B, there are its own set of multiple, you know, redundant uh, um, barriers to, to infection. And so I don't expect this to be a, a, one, a one-shot thing. I expect there to be multiple barriers, um, especially the, given the evolutionary time scale of these viruses. Now, one thing that I think would be very interesting to find is some host, effect, host effector that is intracellular that can block um, replication, uncoding, egress, any facet of the uh, flavivirus uh, viral cycle uh, that can be, or rather exit as opposed to egress, um, that can be utilized um, or that can be shown to be a novel um, inhibition mechanism. And this is a very understudied area in terms of how viruses interact with their arthropod hosts. And given that these viruses spend the majority of their time or the majority of the, of the viral population's existence is in um, these insect hosts, uh, since they, and they are the, the drivers of the urban and sylvatic cycles, they are the ones that give these, these viruses to us and cause outbreaks. Yeah. These, these, these do merit a good amount of of research that's not been afforded to them yet.
0: Right. Um, You're still sort of in the throes of your research. Um, You're still in a way, I mean, beginning as it were. Um, Have you thought about sort of what you would like to do afterwards? Are you sort of interested in the academic track, the industrial track? Do you have any sort of notions now?
1: Yeah, so my, my current focus is on pursuing the academic track. So, you know, following my time in the PLOS lab, I'll ideally do a postdoc and then from there go through the um, maelstrom of, of of applying for faculty positions. Um uh, you you certainly know more more than I about all, all of that, that 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 entails. So I'm looking for looking forward to that somewhat because I, I know it can be it can be a stressful time, but it's you know, the next step to doing what I really want to do. And I, 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 I do my, in my core want to run a lab. I do what my core want to, you know, make discoveries that will hopefully, you know, help people, right? Outside of that, I, I do um, carry out some policy research at Princeton as well. Um, I, I have a, a fellowship from the High Medicine Environmental Institute. It's the HMEI Step Fellowship. And through that, I'm able to do uh, policy research on um, using insect-specific viruses as a means of biocontrol. So I, I'm, I'm kind of exploring that, uh, po- that, that uh, policy work now. And if I enjoy that, that might open other, other other avenues. It could be something that I just carry with me throughout my, my, my time in academia as well. Um, and so I'm, I'm currently exploring, exploring that still.
0: Um, And then uh, this has been obviously a very uh, interesting time, a difficult time to be a virologist. How has it been for you? So living through a pandemic, you know, what has has this been like for you?
1: Yeah, it's been an interesting time. Uh, One of the, I mean, for example, I I had my general exams or I don't know what they call it at at, at your institution, if it's generals or qualifying exams or, or the like, but I had those Via Zoom, um, it, it was it was very it was very interesting presenting all of my plans for the next few years uh, to, to the live as opposed to you know the traditional chalk talk that, that, that's often done. Um, it's been interesting. It, it really has made me think. I don't know more more philosophically about why I do research uh, about you know the the utility of it. You know during the pandemic, we saw in real time how discoveries could shape how discoveries could shape the course of, be it medical treatment uh, in, in the actual clinical setting, to you know po- uh, to the actual uh, drug to drug policies, to public health guidances, how, you know, the, the increasing I guess, the, the increasing openness of science by necessity throughout the pandemic has been very interesting to see, at the very least. You know, as for myself, it, it, it was kind of, it's been an inter- interesting year. Um, it's been gradually returning back to what I think was normal. Um, and, and yeah, it's been a very interesting time, especially to be a virologist during it.
0: So how have you handled sort of, you know, talking to friends and family? A lot of people say that they've turned into sort of this they're the informational source about how to sort of think about risk or vaccination or health issues. What has that been like for you?
1: Well, I, I try to be more of a, more of a teacher than a prophet in those situations. Um, I think that if, if you, if you come out guns, guns blazing that, you know, if you're concerned about this, you're uh, you're a horrible, you're a horrible person or, you know, why don't you agree with me stuff, stuff like that. I, I, over the course of the pandemic kind of, I've, I've, I've learned to approach it in a more, I don't, I don't, I'm trying to think, think of the right word in a more didactic way, trying to ex- explain how, 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 how the things work, as opposed to just saying the, you know, fiat, you must do this. For example, uh, I, 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 you know, Incur, encourage encourage people to do what what is the you know what I would, what I think is the right thing, um, but I try to let them know how I get to that point. So I think that that's been one of the most important things when it comes to navigating those discussions is respecting people enough to give them the way that I got my opinion, give them the information that led me to my opinion, and really the information that led to an established fact in terms of science. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the difficulty: is how to sort of bring people into uh, a new way of looking at something without um, getting their back up right, or to antagonizing them so that they won't listen to what you're trying to say. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because you know, it's staying calm and switching the the, the uh, levels of your science that you'll convey is is, is difficult sometimes, right? You know. If I talk to people in my lab about the difference between a, you know, an, an RT-Q-PCR assay and an and, and antibody-based uh, assay, you know, I I can I, I can have those conversations very quickly. Whereas, you know, other folks don't know what PCR is, or folks don't know what antibodies are. And if they're not, you know, there are some situations where they 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 wouldn't have the, the, the need, the opportunity, the necessity to know those things until now, right? So it can, be, it can be difficult sometimes. But overall, just trying to bring some empathy to it has been something that at least I, I've been trying to work on and I think is generally important if we want people to maintain their respect for science as an institution, to maintain their, I guess, openness to, to learning. Right.
0: Well, thanks so much for talking with us today, Um, and we look forward to uh, seeing some of your work um, in the next year or so.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
0: This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Backright, and thanks for listening.